The Memory Hole podcast is intended only for mature audiences as it deals with topics of childhood sexual abuse and incest. Please do not listen with children. If you or someone you know has experienced sexual abuse, please call RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at their 24-hour hotline, 1-800-656-4673. More information is available on their website, www.rainn.org. Do you think that was the first use of that word then, the memory wars? Yeah, I think it was. And, you know, I'd like to take credit for the title. It's a lo lovely, lovely phrase. But in fact, it was suggested to me by the editors. This is Frederick Cruz, an English professor and one-time Freud enthusiast, discussing his book, The Memory Wars. The Memory Wars is a small, hardback book published by the New York Review of Books in 1994. It is subtitled, Freud's Legacy in Dispute. In 1993, I was asked to review uh, some books about Sigmund Freud for the New York Review of Books. I turned that review into a substantial essay called The Unknown Freud. It was the most controversial article ever published in the New York Review, and that, that remains true today also. One year later, I couldn't help noticing the flourishing of the recovered memory movement. And I realized, of course, that its core concept was Freudian repression. In this case, I didn't wait to be asked to write a piece for the New York Review. I rounded up uh, books on the subject and reviewed them in a much longer essay, which, which appeared in two parts called The Revenge of the Repressed, and that there again you have the next chapter of The Memory Wars. So once again, um, the opponents wrote in quite vigorously, and I replied in kind. And the New York Review editors looked at the correspondence uh, surrounding these two essays and said, we've got a book here. We'll call it The Memory Wars. In the years since the publication of The Memory Wars, Professor Cruz published a book entitled Freud, The Making of an Illusion, drawing on previously unavailable correspondence from Freud's early years. It is putting it mildly to say that the book is highly critical of Freud. If you enjoy having your assumptions challenged, I recommend this book. Talking to Professor Cruz and reading his book, really drew my attention to the deep roots of the recovered memory movement. It made me realize that when I started talking about this subject, I probably should have been clearer. I have been referring to the recovered memory movement of the 80s and 90s. When I should have made it clear, I am talking about the 1980s and 90s. Because there was a previous recovered memory movement in the 1890s. What Freud was doing around the year 1897 was trying to convince his colleagues that his patients, his hysterical patients, had all been sexually abused and that he had achieved wonderful therapeutic results by treating them as such, by, by finding these memories. 
to understand the most recent recovered memory movement, we need to do a recap of the last one. And I know I am only skimming the surface. But here in brief, please let me present Freud's pre-psychoanalytic assumptions. Early on during Freud's career, he saw women in Vienna who were diagnosed as hysterical. We think of hysteria, from the Greek word for uterus, hystera, as meaning an ungovernable emotional excess. But in the 19th century, female hysteria was considered a diagnosable physical illness. In the 20th century, under physicians like Freud, hysteria shifted to being considered a mental illness. In his sessions with his patients, Freud often used a new technique called hypnosis. After a few sessions with Freud, his hysterical patients repeatedly reported remembering sexual abuse, often naming their fathers as the abusers. From these clinical experiences, Freud developed his seduction theory. Parenthetically, seduction is not a word I would use when describing early childhood sexual experiences. His seduction theory was that there was a direct connection between child sexual abuse, what he called premature sexual experiences, and adult hysteria. Moreover, these experiences in childhood had been repressed. In 1896, Freud published his findings about the root of hysteria being repressed sexual abuse. In The Etiology of Hysteria, he makes the claim that at the root of every case of hysteria, there is, quote, one or more occurrences of premature sexual experiences, end quote. But this is not the Freudian psychoanalytic framework that shaped the minds of the 20th century. How did we end up with the Oedipus complex? And what happened to the seduction theory? Freud was helping his early female patients hypnotizing them and enabling them to recover their memories of child sexual abuse, right? In fact, if we read Freud's private correspondence, we find that this is not at all the case. The patients regarded Freud as a screwball. They walked out on him. They laughed at him. They said, this is your problem. This is not my problem. And Freud's colleagues completely completely rejected the idea, and it was humiliating for him. And that is why he dropped the idea that hysteria results from childhood sexual abuse, not that he did any research on the subject. There are many theories about why Freud turned away from this seduction theory. It's important because it really set the stage for all of his further work. Before I researched this topic, I was loosely familiar with a more conspiratorial reason. Somewhere along the way, I had heard the idea that Freud stopped believing his women patients out of fear, fear of exposing the biggest scandal of Victorian life. Doesn't it sound like a neat conspiracy? Freud, the unrivaled misogynist, concealed the truth that feminists uncovered a century later. This framing of history that I had kind of almost unconsciously imbibed was first presented by Florence Rush in her 1971 presentation about child sexual abuse, and she called it the Freudian cover-up. Psychiatrist Jeffrey Mason, who advocated for recovered memories of abuse, further popularized the idea. I think you may be referring to Jeffrey Mason. Yes, yes, that's yeah, right. The, the Assault on Truth, uh, 1984. Um, 
which had a very significant recruiting effect on, on this movement um, because it seemed to show that Freud uh, lost his nerve, that, that he, he was originally right in thinking that all of his hysterical patients had been molested and then he worried about the disapproval of his colleagues and he backed off. And the result was a compromise, which was simply orthodox psychoanalytic theory, which, which didn't exactly discard the idea of childhood molestation, but it marginalized it in favor of a much more radical and weird idea, namely the idea of the Oedipus complex, whereby little children want to have sexual intercourse with their parent of the opposite sex and then fear castration or other forms of punishment for this and so repress their incest wish. Um, needless to say, no one in the recovered memory movement subscribes to that. Right. But Freud was bent upon success a responsible scientist who had painted himself into a corner like that would have to drop the theory altogether. But what Freud did was to try to save the key element of his theory, which was precisely repression, by applying it to a different explanation of why people are suffering from hysteria in adulthood. So that's why he went from repressed memory of specific events to repressed memory of desires. If you have a repressed memory of a desire, how are you going to show the public that it is either true or false? Is this desire going to result in some kind of evidence that can be examined? Of course not. So it's simply Freud say so. That's all it is. Because this was confusing for me at first, I'll just rephrase it to make it plainer, in case it's confusing for you, too. It's not that Freud was correct when he said that his patients had experienced childhood sexual abuse that they forgot, nor is it correct that he later denied those memories. This is a case where both things are wrong. Freud, in fact, offered an explanation, namely repression, for symptoms that he himself had produced— largely through hypnosis. In muddling this topic so badly, Freud further set back the cause of genuine victims of child sexual abuse. He took his idea, that original so-called seduction theory, and then refolded it into the Oedipus complex. But somehow his theory still lingered, ready to be revived nearly a hundred years later. I think that understanding these 100-year-old deep roots of the recovered memory movement helps explain the 20th century controversy in psychology between some clinicians and memory scientists. The phrase, the memory wars, referred at first to these academic debates. But when people use that phrase casually, the memory wars, my impression is that they are not thinking about these written debates between Professor Cruz and psychology professors or exchanges in the New York Review of Books between feminist scholars. And they're most likely unaware of the echoes of Freud and the recovered memory movement. People didn't need to be in the academic ivory tower to understand the memory wars. The chaos that was happening in early 90s America was easy to see. People, mostly women, 
were remembering en masse, and they were actively trying to remember. The following is an exchange taken from two postings on Prodigy, an early computer bulletin board. These are taken from Mark Pendergrass's book, Victims of Memory. January 1st, 1993. Hi, everybody. My name is Gretchen. I am from Germany and in the States for about 16 months now. I am 30 years old, married, and after four miscarriages in 18 months, we went to marriage counseling. I also have a sexual problem, no desire at all. The counselor and the therapist are both convinced that I was sexually abused as a kid, but I don't remember anything. They said it is probably so bad that I had to block it out or it would have killed me. Now I'm running around and try to remember. I know I was hit every day. I was the only child, but sexual abuse never occurred to me at all. God, I have so many questions and hope somebody will answer me and share their experience with me. Dear Gretchen, you're not alone in this. I had no memories of being sexually abused until about one and a half years ago. About three years ago, I started reading books on the subject and every effects list described me to a T. I didn't have any memories, but I just had a really strong feeling that something had happened. When I stopped thinking of memories in visual terms, I started to realize that I was remembering things all the time. Reactions, feelings, panic attacks, fears, and phobias are all memories. Reading books on sexual abuse is a really good way to retrieve memories. Pay attention. We can hear in this exchange from 1993 that childhood sexual abuse had gone from a shameful secret to normalized to sort of universalized. 1993 was also the year of Volume 3, Number 4 of Ms. Magazine, with their most infamous and lurid cover story ever. Believe it, written in all caps on the cover. Cult ritual abuse exists. One woman's story. The central image is of a naked infant, blonde, encircled by a thick green snake with astrological-looking glyphs on its skin. At the left edge of the magazine and on the entire back cover, the rounded heads of the multi-headed snake swirl, their forked black tongues protruding from red angry faces. It feels like looking at a nightmare about hidden forces, a terrifying fairy tale. The symbolism of our nightmares can be deeply personal, but this image conveys a sense of the national mood, sinking into a snake pit. The author of the story, entitled Surviving the Unbelievable, claims that she was part of a generational satanic cult and that her baby sister was decapitated in a ritual sacrifice and then eaten in a communion-like ritual while her father was away in the Vietnam War. She does point out that there was no official evidence of the infant's existence. A sidebar in the article lists helpful resources. The first book on the list, The Courage to Heal. To the best of my knowledge, Ms. Magazine has never issued a retraction or an apology for this article. When Meredith Marin began writing about child sexual abuse, her editors weren't interested in covering this topic. By 1993, that had changed. 
the memory wars raged in the popular press. Let's listen to some stories in the news from the early 90s to get a flavor of the era. Every day in this country, people are convicted of crimes based on memories. But memories are far from perfect. There are things that happen that we can't remember. Then there are things we remember that never happened. And some say that is exactly what happened in the cases Bob Faw investigated for tonight's Eye on America. Years after a Detroit father took his happy daughter and family on this vacation to Niagara Falls, the daughter sits in a Michigan courtroom and accuses the father of rape. I had another memory of my father raping me. Was this something that occurred in therapy? Yes. Like hundreds of other women, she is convinced that what she recalled in therapy much, much later is true, even though her father insists the memories are totally false. It is a typical case. Years later, the child sues the parent for sexual abuse. There is no physical evidence, no corroboration, just the child's recovered memories. The issue is whether in fact these things took place. Or as the attorney for Catherine's father alleges, whether they were planted by a therapist. When Catherine Hall's therapist admitted she had been abused. I was abused by my father, um, my grandfather, my uncle, and my brother. It raised the issue of whether she had her own bias and found in her patients what she set out to find. It's not my job to discover the truth. It's right. my job to facilitate her and give her a, a free, safe place to recover memories. There's no doubt in my mind that she's sincere in believing these, but they aren't real. In effect, the judge here agreed and dismissed Catherine's complaint, ruling that memory alone is not enough to sustain charges of rape. The ruling cleared her father's name but by then, what had emerged in therapy had shattered a family. In San Francisco, this is Bob Fall for Eye on America. Time Magazine, November 29, 1993. Lies of the Mind. Suffering from a prolonged bout of depression, Melody Gavigan, 39, a computer specialist from Long Beach, California, checked herself into a local psychiatric hospital. During five weeks of treatment there, she went on to recall being molested by her father when she was only a year old. Gavigan confronted her father with her accusations, severed her relationship with him, moved away, and formed an incest survivors group her father's forgiveness and filed a lawsuit against the psychiatric hospital for the pain that she and her family suffered. In the U.S. in the past several years, literally thousands of people, mostly women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, have been coming forward with accusations that they were sexually abused as children. Authors Lean Jaroff and Janine McDowell. The American Medical Association released a policy statement on recovered memory. The AMA considers recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse to be of uncertain authenticity, which should be subject to external verification. The use of recovered memories is fraught with problems of potential misapplication. The New York Times, May 14, 1994. Father who fought, quote, memory therapy wins damage suit. In a groundbreaking legal verdict, a Napa County jury awarded $500,000 today to a father who had accused psychotherapists of conning his adult daughter into remembering childhood incidents of incest that he said had never occurred. Mental health experts said that as a result of today's jury verdict, the relatively new practice of recovered memory therapy, as well as those who practice it, would at least come under closer scrutiny. 
In a statement issued immediately after the verdict was announced, Mr. Ramona said, The jury saw what I've always known, that Holly's supposed memories are the result of the defendant's drugs and quackery, not anything I did. B. Drummond Ayers, Jr., reporting. By 1995, even Geraldo of daytime television talk show fame had changed his mind. I want to announce publicly that as a firm believer in the, quote, Believe the Children movement of the 1980s that started with the McMartin trials in California, now I am convinced I was terribly wrong. And many innocent people were convicted and went to prison as a result. I am equally positive that the repressed memory therapy movement is also a bunch of crap. Geraldo Rivera, CNBC, December 12th, 1995. If you first read The Courage to Heal and then immediately listen to these clips, it gives one the sense of viewing the other half of the mirror brought to life. For example, in one parallel, in their chapters, Disclosures and Confrontations, Bass and Davis advise women on how to confront their families. Take the time to prepare, they advise. The terms are yours. You set the boundaries. You pick the timing. You choose the turf. But then in the video, Making Memories from 1992, we hear about how that went from the other side. I have many people come in who are being sued, and the patterns I'm seeing are repetitive. It's always the same way. Usually they get a phone call from their daughter saying, I can't see you anymore. I'm in therapy. I need time alone. Please honor my request. And they become isolated. Then weeks or months may pass and they're invited to a, uh, a group therapy session or a family therapy session is the way that it's uh, represented. They go there and they're told she has something to tell you. You shouldn't uh, talk back to her or anything. That'll delay her recovery. Uh, just listen to what she has to say. They sit down, and for the first time, the father hears that he's being accused of some horrendous act, and he's being told not to deny it because that'll hurt her therapy, not to say anything. Uh, in many cases, the wife is being asked, do you believe me? And if you don't believe me, I never want to see you again. So. Out of the clear blue, the entire family is being shattered. Or in another mirror to the courage to heal, when women were told about, quote, the emergency stage and encouraged to, quote, get help from other survivors, it is unlikely that anyone other than another survivor can listen as much as you'll need to talk. In another clip from the documentary Making Memories, we see this obsession and isolation from the other side. These people are put in group therapies and their peers in the group mm -hmm. apply tremendous pressure like everyone else is getting memories. When are you going to get the memories? There's a lot of uh, pressure to cut off your family. So what can happen is this individual basically has now joined a new community and a new family. They've been encouraged to cut off their old family. For them to then face up to what has happened to them, as Laura has had the courage to do, and some others, but most, I think, have not, is a very, very difficult thing to do. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that all of us are vulnerable to suggestion. The sense of the rebuttal being like a mirror is not an accident, because what sprung up in direct response to the accusations and sorts of practices advocated for in The Courage to Heal 
was the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Laura is not alone. In 1992, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was founded by parents accused by their adult children of sexual abuse. Today, the foundation has over 14,000 members and its board of directors includes some of the most prestigious researchers and leaders in the field of mental health. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation is where the battle lines of the memory wars got really ugly. And just like in a war, uncertainty set in. Each side is insistent on their version of the story and have been telling their stories publicly for 30 years. Nearly everything I am about to say now is disputed by someone. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation started as a support group, became an important resource for memory experts, and disseminated a lot of important information on the topic of memory, therapeutic abuses, and family reconciliation. Although the group closed in 2019, their website is still up. According to their website, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was started in 1992 by groups of parents all across the nation, from Philadelphia, Dallas, and Minnesota. They gathered an academic advisory board and published newsletters. Their families were responding to what they saw as abrupt, formulaic, and untrue allegations by their daughters. What they were experiencing felt like an iatrogenic epidemic, and they needed support. Their daughters were caught up in something, a syndrome of behaviors, that seemed generated by therapists and the courage to heal. As it says on the False Memory Syndrome Foundation website, they wanted to know. What had happened in these families and in the lives of the now-adult children that resulted in such terrible alienation? If their children suffered from repressed memory syndrome, then the parents felt that they too had fallen ill with the false memory syndrome. There definitely is an epidemic of these ac accusations of sexual abuse coming from adults who claim that they have suddenly unblocked or uh, recovered previously repressed memories uh, in which usually they're accusing a father, but it can be another male figure uh, with a female being the accuser. That's the most common pattern, not the only one. And it's something that I've seen in my own work as a psychiatrist for the last seven years. Overwhelming uh, from both laboratory work as well as clinical work that people don't forget those kind of major traumas. If anything, they may have a problem with uh, it, it being intruding upon them too much. What is going on instead is that these are people who've been caught up in a network of manipulation and suggestion, most often through therapy with mental health professionals, although it can even happen outside of therapy through the many TV programs and books and articles and word of mouth, which is now spreading, which is giving people the idea that uh, you may have been sexually abused even though you have no memory of it. By 1996, false memory syndrome was included in some dictionaries. From the Random House Compact on a Bridge Dictionary, false memory syndrome is a psychological condition in which a person remembers events that have not actually occurred. But on the other side, false memory syndrome foundation detractors, or proponents of recovered memory therapies, objected to the term syndrome. You're using terms like syndrome? How can you claim to be scientific? You say an epidemic is occurring, where is your data? The foundation was accused here in this quote by psychologist David Kaloff, but also more broadly that the foundation has started a public relations campaign rather than a bona fide research effort and simply announced to the world that an epidemic of this syndrome exists. 
This was just one line of attack leveled at the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. Another, one that the False Memory Syndrome Foundation Board admitted to, was that not every family member who presented to meetings or signed up to be a member was vetted or evaluated. Could they be harboring abusers and pedophiles? The spokespeople admitted as much, a concession that stung. A person who's being uh, accused of uh, a sexual molestation based upon a recovered memory uh, during therapy is much better off today than they would have been just five or six years ago. The uh, research is getting out to the public through an organization called False Memory Syndrome Foundation. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation has been able to generate a tremendous increase in awareness on this problem in a very short period of time simply by people who were accused banding together saying this is nonsense it didn't happen where is all this coming from generating information gathering together people to meet to talk about it producing literature and I think it's very revealing that it was a lay grassroots organization which has done that not a mental health society But I'm tiptoeing around the most contentious part of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. The most controversial part of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation is about one family. And on both sides of this family, they really are the first family of the memory wars. They are the frieds. And here is where now nothing becomes clear. I will try to recap a highly contested story, and my version will please no one, I'm sure. After seeing a therapist in her early 30s, Jennifer Fried had visions of rape scenes and male genitalia. She became convinced that these were newly remembered, previously repressed memories of actual abuse, repeated abuse at the hands of her father over many years. With her new awareness fresh in her mind, she accused her parents on the verge of a Christmas visit, and they left. Her parents, Pam and Peter Fried, vociferously denied the allegations. Trying to prove their innocence is what led to an anonymous article Pam filed in the Institute for Psychological Therapy's journal, entitled, How Could This Happen? Coping with a False Allegation of Incest and Rape. The article was anonymous, but Jennifer, a psychology professor, recognized herself and felt professionally exposed. In the initial aftershock of the accusations, Jennifer tried to corroborate her memories through hypnosis. In the initial aftershocks of the accusations, the Frieds tried to corroborate their memories through a lie detector test, which Peter reportedly passed. Who made their disagreements public? Each side claims the other. Who threatened whom with disclosure? Again, each side claims the other. Their story is rather tragic. Both sides have made this personal hurt the central thread of their professional lives. Pam and Peter, but particularly Pam, threw herself into the work of the False Memory Syndrome Foundation to support parents accused of sexual abuse due to recovered memories, which is also her personal story. Jennifer's life's work has been centered on proving the truth of recovered memories, what she calls betrayal trauma. She developed a popular psychology acronym, DARVO, to describe a reaction pattern when perpetrators are accused of wrongdoing. When an offender is held accountable for their behavior, according to this model, the accused will usually, quote, deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender, end quote. 
which is also her personal story. The polarized debate around this family and the larger issues of recovered memories persists today. A 2021 article in New York Magazine about the Freyds clearly took Jennifer's side in the debate, reviving many of the same positions and disputed facts. You can find all sides of that story in the show notes as well as all of the references I've used in this episode. You can educate yourself and see which side you agree with. But for me, focusing on the personalities distorts the truth. If you believe Jennifer, then you believe her research. If you believe the Freyds' denials of abuse, you believe there are serious problems with the concept of recovered memories. My personal, moderately informed opinion from 30 years distance is that the False Memory Syndrome Foundation did a lot of important work. I am interested in the same question their organization was. What is the accuracy of claims of recovered, quote, repressed, end quote, memories of abuse? It seems that the foundation combated the excesses of the recovered memory movement. But at the same time, the personalities and personal flaws of some of the organizers are real. I don't want to be on the record as denying they're not. In an essay from the New York Times in 1993, Carol Tavris wrestled with the same problem. The New York Times, January 3rd, 1993. Beware the incest survivor machine. To want to throw a small wrench into the abuse survivor machine is like opposing censorship of pornography. Nowadays, you feel you have to apologize for any support you might be providing to molesters, rapists, pedophiles, and other misogynists. This results from the terrible polarization that has emerged on the subject of the sexual abuse of children. Carol Tavris, author. It seems like on either side of this debate, one is left with objectionable people and issues. Would you like to be on the team where some people believe babies were ritually sacrificed to Satan? Or how about, would you like to join the team where you could not be sure pedophiles were hidden? I reject both these extremes. If we take the most extreme examples of recovered memories of trauma, they become really the test case for the entire idea of repression. Can an individual repress all memories of repeated sexual abuse from age three to college age, and then decades later recover memories that are historically accurate? We can forget things from our past in many explainable and rational ways. There is willed forgetting of intrusive memories. Say something unpleasant happens to someone and they put it out of their minds or consciously suppress the memory. Or someone might have experienced something traumatic as a child, but they might not have fully understood what happened. Adult knowledge reframes the experience. So childhood sexual abuse may not have been understood to be overtly abusive or sexual. Later in life, the adult sees their childhood differently. And then there is latent disclosure of abuse when the victim knows they are being abused but cannot share this information out of fear for their own safety. Years later, they share what happened, but they never forgot. But the basic claim that lay at the root of the recovered memory movement was different. You know, the first sentence of Judith Herman's uh, Trauma and Recovery says that the ordinary, the normal, response to trauma is to forget it, okay? That's mm -hmm. repression. That is exactly the opposite of the truth as, as determined by psychological science. 
But what we have in the recovered memory movement is something more radical than the proposition that you can be sexually abused and repress it and then remember it later under therapy. The key concept that is uh, cited over and over again to justify recovered memories is what psychologist Richard Ofsky called robust repression. Robust repression. Now, what's that? Robust repression is the idea that you can be sexually abused over and over and over and over again and never remember any of these things. On the contrary, each one reinforces recovering more memories. And finally, we get a situation where typically the young girl was sexually abused, I mean, actually raped, let's say from the age of seven to the age of 15, without ever remembering even one single occurrence of it. That's robust repression. And a lot of people still believe that on and on and on. And all of this has to be validated in some way by theory. So that's where robust repression comes in. And of course, nothing could be more ridiculous. Do the claims that recovered memory movement proponents made make sense? Is it ominous to forget much of our childhoods? Are we able to forget repeated horrific events? Um, I told you that post-traumatic stress disorder, people tend to, you know, remember too much. Well, that makes sense in a way. Evolutionarily, in order to, you know, live the best life we can in the future, we tend to remember best the, the good things that happen to us so we, we can try to replicate that and repeat it, mm-hmm. or the worst things that happen to us so that we can avoid them. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that you would completely and utterly forget it. It does make sense that you would try to put it out of your mind right. and not think about it. And I did run into cases where people had said, oh, I hadn't thought of that in years. Oh, now I remember it. But generally speaking, we don't uh, uh, forget that stuff. And the other thing is that memory is complicated. Right. Uh, All of us have false memories to one degree or another. Every time we recall something, we're getting it reassembled from different parts of our brain. uh, And we never quite get it completely right. It's, it's very alarming to, to many people that, you know, you ask your siblings about a particular incident and that you're sure you remember one way and they remember it another way. You're sure it happened to you and they say, no, that happened to me. Um, right. So it, it, memory is a kind of a, a, a fragile thing. The central question for each accused family was the same question that drove the memory wars writ large. How do we remember? Does anyone know how memories are made, stored, and retrieved? Let's gather some data, shall we? It's past time that we had an understanding of how memory actually works. Join me, won't you, in the memory hole. Our next episode how brains work, and how we remember.